Why don't we uh, pray together and we'll open our time and then we'll dig into Psalm 146. May we pray with me? Father, thank you again for your presence with us this morning. We are aware that you're with us in a way that maybe we're not so aware on Mondays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays or the rest of the week. We thank you that you help us know that you're with us uh, through your word, through your people, through your spirit. We need all of those inputs to help us be confident that you're at work in our lives for good. And so we thank you that that's the truth and that we can hold to that no matter what our lives look like, no matter what our circumstances look like to our physical eyes. We trust your word. We trust what you say to us. And so we come this morning wanting to hear your voice. We want to hear you speak through the words on these pages. And we thank you that you do that. And we want to listen well. So would you work in our hearts? Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are ready to receive and respond to whatever you say to us this morning. Thank you that we can count on you to do that work that's impossible for us. We don't have the ability to carve away the hard places in our own hearts. We can't do open heart surgery on ourselves. So we're thankful that you do it, and we ask you to do it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin thinking about Psalm 146, which is very much a praise psalm for the character of God, we want to raise the question about faith as well. Whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? It's a very important question, and it's one that we don't typically need to ask. We just live in the world, and we trust people and things and realities. We are a trusting people, and God has given us that capacity. And God wants us, at one level, to trust each other. We are relational people, and one of the foundational hallmarks of a healthy relationship is trust right? You, if you don't have trust in a marriage, your marriage will suffer. If you don't have trust in your relationships, you will suffer. Those relationships will suffer. And so trust is a good thing between people, but none of us trusts other people with everything. All of us recognize the reality that people can be deceptive. And not only that, people have limits, right? We don't always know what we're talking about. We don't always have the best information. We don't always have the right perspective. We all have limitations on what we think and what we believe about the world around us. And so very often, it comes down to a question of trust. Whom do you trust? Somebody tells you something, you trust what they say or you don't. And the question is, why Do you or don't you? And there are lots of reasons that you could pull on. Well, I trust this person because they tend to tell me the truth, right? We have a relationship that's longstanding, and it's been born out over time that they tell me the truth, and so I trust what they say. Or we look at them and we say that they have some knowledge in a particular area. We go to a mechanic like me who knows nothing about car repair. I'm going to take it to a a mechanic and I'm going to trust that he knows what he's talking about when he diagnoses whatever's broken and when he tells me this is what we've got to do to fix it. I'm going to trust him because I have no idea how to assess that. I have no idea how to know whether he's telling me the truth or not. And so my choice there to trust him may be based on nothing other than the fact that he is a mechanic or maybe a friend who's been to him before said, oh, you can trust this guy. He does a good job. He knows what he's talking about. And so on the basis of the friend's recommendation, I'll trust this other guy that I don't have a relationship with. And so trust is really fundamental to our human relationships, but it it never goes all the way, and it really shouldn't. And that's one of the warnings that Psalm 146 presents to us. There's a danger in trusting in human beings because of our sin and because of our limitations. Our perspective is always limited. We don't have all the information ever. We never have 100% of the picture. That's God's job. He knows everything all the time from every angle perfectly. And so we can 
trust him. And so the call that's coming out of this psalm, even as we direct our praise to God for who he's revealed himself to be, is that he is utterly trustworthy. I entitled the sermon today, Trusting Our Praiseworthy Lord, but I, I went back and forth as to whether I should title it, Praising Our Trustworthy Lord, or Trusting Our Praiseworthy Lord. And you could go either way. Both of those emphases are here in the psalm, but I, I landed on trusting our praiseworthy Lord because I think the way our psalm is presenting this is that we, we praise God, we worship Him because He's trustworthy. We praise Him because He has proven Himself to be trustworthy over the course of, well, forever. <laughs> and we have this book that shows us all of the ways that He has been faithful and truthful. And ultimately, the question of whom do you trust comes down to the, the fact or not. Do they tell you the truth? And we can trust God to tell us the truth all the time in every situation. Whatever God says is true fundamentally. And so, what's supposed to come out of singing this psalm or worshiping God through these words is that our trust would be built up, that our faith in Him would be strengthened, knowing that we can trust Him to do what He said He's going to do in our lives day by day, and therefore we worship Him and we praise Him. So let's see how this kind of unfolds as we look at these verses. Once again, let's read through Psalm 146. And take it all in. Begins with this praise Yah or hallelujah. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yah. So the psalmist begins here with a call to worship. There's a call and commitment to praise the Lord in verses 1 and 2. He begins with this opening call, Hallelujah. Yah. There's a command there. Hallelujah is a command to all of God's people to praise Him. And then Yah on the end of that hallelujah is an abbreviation for the divine name. It's a shortened form of Yahweh, what we've become accustomed, more accustomed to recognizing as the name that God revealed in the Scriptures to Moses on Mount Sinai, this personal name of the covenant God, Yahweh. And so the psalmist opens by calling all of God's people to praise Him. I don't know that we've reflected enough on what it means to praise. What is praise? Well, it's a, it's a verbal action in the Bible. It's to speak well of someone, basically and fundamentally. You can think about it in terms of human beings. We praise people. We say, good job, or you're really good at that. That is a word of praise for someone. And the same thing is true of God. When we praise God, it's a verbal act. We praise Him by saying, God, you are awesome. Or God, you have done amazing things. When we address God and adore Him with our words, whether it be in singing or just in speaking, that's what praise is. It's a verbal expression of Praise, adoration to God for who He is and what He's done. And He goes immediately from calling all people to praise God, to praise Yahweh, to addressing Himself. And so He turns in the second line of verse 1, Praise Yahweh, O my soul. So He calls everybody to praise the Lord, and then He 
calls himself to praise him. And that's an important thing to remember. Because sometimes we don't feel like praising the Lord. Sometimes we need encouragement. And we might get that from other people. Like someone could stand up here and say, praise the Lord. And that would be an encouragement for you to do that, even if you don't feel like it. But very often when we're alone, we might not feel like speaking well of God. Maybe that's because our circumstances are hard and we've We're really struggling to see how God is at work in our lives. And in that moment, we might not really feel like saying nice things about God. We'd rather just be silent and wallow in our suffering. But in that moment, we need to stir ourselves up. When there's nobody else around, (laughs) we can, in fact, talk to ourselves. And the Bible actually commends that practice. So talking to yourself is not necessarily a sign that you're crazy, But in fact, it's a biblical practice to talk to yourself, to address yourself in the right ways, to call yourself to praise God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, because I need to be charged. I need to be pushed. And sometimes there's nobody else around to push me. So guess what? I've got the responsibility to push myself. And so he says, praise Yahweh, O my soul. And out of that encouragement, he makes a commitment. He says in verse 2, I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So his commitment is long-lasting, permanent, repeated, ongoing praising of God. And the ESV and most of our English Bibles say, I will sing praises. And that's part of it. But this word's actually much broader. It means to make music. So playing the piano like we heard earlier, playing the instruments outside is a proper and appropriate expression of praise to God, even without verbal accompaniment. So to make music to God using all manner of instrumentation is appropriate. He's worth it all. That's the bottom line. He's worth using whatever skills God has given to us to play for Him, to show His worth and His value, not my skill, not the, my abilities, but to show His value and His worth. We play music, and we also open our mouths and sing, even if there's not much skill there. We are to praise Him for all of our lives. And so the psalmist here makes that commitment. But in verses 3 and 4, he turns a corner a little bit, and he starts kind of teaching us in the midst of his singing and praising here. He's again addressing the body here, and he's raising the question, why not trust people in verses 3 and 4? Why not trust in people? He commands, don't put your trust in princes. And that word is not a royal word. It's a word for uh, big, important people, big, valuable people, big, skillful people. It's powerful people, whether they're royal or not. And he's basically saying, don't look around for your security to the people who know the most or seem to have the most prestige in society or have the greatest skill. You've got to look beyond them for your security. That word trust is a word we've seen many times in the Psalms here. It's a word that means to find your security in someone or something. And he says, don't do that in the best people around you. Don't find your security in the best people around you. No matter what their field of expertise is, no matter what their great skill is, don't find your ultimate security there. Now, there's a little bit of a tension that we have to ride out here because very often, like, for example, when we take our car to the mechanic or when we go to a doctor when our body is breaking down, We want to express at least some measure of trust in what they tell us to do or what they're going to do to our car or our bodies. We want to express some level of trust. And so what we see is that very, very often, and this is true within the church and this is true more broadly, God God is at work to protect us, to preserve us, to do us good through other people. Through other people. So... The point would be to say, I'm finding my ultimate security in God rather than the mechanic, rather than the doctor, rather than the government official, rather than the parent or the teacher. My ultimate security is in God alone because what's going to happen ultimately and repeatedly is that the humans we put our trust in are going to fail in that moment. 
That doesn't mean that we should necessarily abandon our trust in them, like, for example, in our marriages, when our spouses fail, when our relationships break down because of sin. That doesn't mean we should necessarily abandon our trust in that other person, but instead we continue trusting our God to keep us safe, to hold us secure, to protect and preserve us even when human beings fail, because they're going to. And that's ultimately our psalmist's point here, is even the best of human beings can't keep you utterly safe. Even the best of human beings cannot truly protect you all the way to the end. They're going to fail. They're going to fail. And so if the first line is about great people, the second line is kind of about everybody else. In a, don't put your trust in rulers, noblemen, princes, big people, or, and don't put your trust in a son of man. We could translate that a little bit differently, a descendant of Adam. That would be a literal way to bring that over into English. A descendant of Adam. Well, that covers everybody, doesn't it? Don't trust, don't find your security in any descendant of Adam in whom there is no salvation. Now, when the psalmist is talking about salvation, don't think just in spiritual terms. Our psalmist is not thinking like salvation from sin. It applies there, of course. No human being can save you from your sin. But he's talking about just in life. He's talking about when you're in danger and when your life is threatened. A descendant of Adam in their own strength, working on their own power from their own identity and resources can rescue you, can protect you, can preserve you. They just don't have the ability to do that. Descendants of Adam are broken people, all of them. And then he explains exactly what particular weakness he's focused on. It's the reality that people die. That's what verse 4 is all about. When his breath departs, a descendant of Adam, when a human being's breath leaves his body, he returns to the earth or to the, to the ground. There's a play on words there from the name Adam to the word for ground, going back to Genesis 3.19. On that very day, his plans perish. So think about it like this. Somebody in power or even just a, a, a parent seeking to be faithful to their children has plans. We want to provide for our children. We want to protect the needy people around us. Or somebody in high authority ideally wants to do good for those underneath their authority. And they have these plans laid out. But death comes, and they're unable to fulfill those plans. Death comes, and they're unable to extend that protection and that provision. We all want to do well for our children. We all want to protect and provide for our children. But someday we're going to die. And someday our children are going to have to live without us, whether sooner or later. And so it's good and right for our children to learn to trust us as their parents, but also to trust beyond us, to recognize that if even we as parents are successful in protecting our kids and loving our kids and growing our kids, it's because God has been at work. We can't do it on our own. If our efforts are successful to do good for anybody around us, our children, our spouses, our communities, it's because God's been at work. He gets the credit for everything. I hope you see that. Don't try to take credit for yourself in your labors and in your efforts. And the reality of the, the truth of the matter is that God is the one who's at work to ensure that that protection and that preservation goes on beyond our lifetime. We are a blip on the map right? Uh, even those of us who have extended our life into our 80s, that's a blip in history. I think we all know that, and many of us know that better as we get older. We recognize that life is fleeting. And in the, the grand scope of history and God's outworking of His plans, we are here for a very, very, very short time. And we can accomplish very, very little in this world. That should humble us. That should put us in our proper place. And that's part of what our psalmist is wanting to do here. But I can't help at this point from the way that he's worded it to say, but I do, I do put my trust in a son of man, a particular son of man, the one we know of as Jesus. And so I'm not to put my trust in any old descendant of Adam, any old human being, because in them there is no salvation, but there is one man in whom there is salvation. There is one man who his plans don't fail even though he died. Death didn't eliminate his plan or cause his plan to fail. Death actually caused his plan to succeed. 
And so I trust him. That's the son of man, the descendant of Adam that I'm going to trust. And I don't think that's outside the bounds of what our psalmist is saying here because what we're going to see is that this whole psalm maps beautifully onto Jesus. He is not only the Lord, Yahweh, the one who's praised in this psalm in every other verse, but he's also the true man, the one son of man that we can put our ultimate faith in, the one son of man, the one descendant of Adam who overcomes death, for whom death is not an obstacle to him. It's actually his means of accomplishing his grand purposes of ultimate salvation. And so we do put our trust in a particular son of man. But that puts all of our other trust in each other in a little bit smaller terms. And it's not an absolute, like, never trust other people. Obviously you should. And God expects that our relationships are going to be founded on some measure of trust. We couldn't survive. We couldn't actually have real relationships if we didn't have some measure of trust. But the psalmist is reflecting on this ultimate reality that whatever limited way we trust each other, we need to trust God to a greater extent and recognize that whatever successes we have as people, it goes to God as the one who gets the glory and has the credit for the good things that come. So our psalmist continues here in verses 5 through 10. If if verses 3 through 4 raise the question, why not trust people? Then verses 5 through 10, the rest of the psalm raises the question and answers, why trust the Lord? Why trust the Lord? And so he begins with a beatitude, blessed. We've seen this word lots of times in the psalms. Several of the psalms that we chose happen to have this word. That wasn't necessarily a part of the plan, but it's just worked. Um, But there are 25 of these in the Psalms, and this is the last one in the book of Psalms. So if you were reading along from Psalm 1 all the way through the end, this is the last time you would see, blessed is or blessed are so-and-so. It's this congratulations idea. Congratulations to the one whose help is the God of Jacob. (laughs) Now what's funny about that and what we should reflect on is that typically we we wouldn't congratulate someone who was sitting there going, I need help. But that's exactly the right response. The psalmists, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they want us to recognize that we are needy people. We need help all the time. And we need God's help in particular. And so the one who has, who can claim the help of the God of Jacob, he is to be congratulated. And that means even when you're in the midst of a mess... Even when your life is in shambles, if you have a relationship with this God, if you can call on Him to help you, even before the help arrives, you're to be congratulated. You're truly in a good spot. Even when your life is broken, even when your life is a mess because of suffering or sin or some combination of both, at that moment, you're not cursed. You are not under the judgment of God. You are not being punished. You are ready to receive the help of the God of Jacob. Now he uses this term, the God of Jacob. It pops up lots of times in the Old Testament. It reminds us, should remind us, of how Yahweh shepherded and helped Jacob. As we read these verses, some of the specific things that the psalmist is going to bring out speaks of things that the Lord did specifically for Jacob in his life. So the title is very fitting here and for Jacob's immediate family. For example, think about how Jacob and his family experienced famine and had to go down to Egypt. The Lord used Joseph in Egypt to feed them. And the psalmist here praises the Lord for feeding people, providing bread. And speaking of Joseph, remember how he languished in prison for a time, and yet at the right time... Yahweh worked providentially through an Egyptian cupbearer's memory and the favor of a pharaoh in order to set him free. So there's a good example of how the Lord rescued a prisoner literally and physically through human beings. And you can see very much that Joseph is not trusting the cupbearer. And if he was, if you remember that story, he said, Oh, cupbearer, remember me when you get your position back. Well, he didn't, right? He forgot him initially. And then later on, he remembered, and he was able to bring Joseph up to Pharaoh's attention. The Lord did that. God did that to rescue Joseph from the prison. 
And so these things that we see in verses 6 through 9, especially 6 through 10, all the way down, are things that God has done and is doing and will do. We can see that progression, actually. The psalmist praises the Lord for what he's done in the past, in verse 6, at the beginning of verse 6, and then from verses, the rest of verse 6 on to verse 9, what the Lord does in the present, and then verse 10, what the Lord is going to do in the future. And there's overlap between all of these things, but let's break that down a little bit. So congratulations. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So he points back to creation here. Congratulations to the one who has the Creator as his helper. Think about that. The God who created everything by speaking is your helper. He is the one who will come alongside you to help you when you need help. (laughs) that should blow our minds. He's got that kind of power that he can speak the universe into existence. I think he can manage whatever you and I are struggling with. That's kind of the point there. He's a little bit more emphatic, I think, than our English Bibles. He, He describes God here as the maker of heaven and earth. And we saw that phrase pop up a couple of weeks ago in one of the Psalms we looked at. He is the maker, the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he is the, the one who has done this in the past, but he's also, as the maker, the one who is continually, continually making the world, there's kind of an emphasis here on God's ongoing preservation of the universe. It reminds me of Colossians 1 and how Jesus is praised and worshipped in a little poem of praise in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, I think it is. And he is worshipped as the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. Jesus, the Son of God, has the particular responsibility of holding everything in the universe together at this moment and for all time. If he didn't do that, if he failed for even a nanosecond, everything in the universe would fall apart. You would cease to exist, as would everything in the universe. Jesus... Your Savior, this descendant of Adam, has the peculiar and special responsibility of holding the universe together. He can probably hold your life together too. He is worthy of praise for that. The psalmist goes on in the rest of verse 6 and on through verse 9 to talk about what he does characteristically in an ongoing fashion, what the Lord does in the present. So at the end of verse 6... He is the God who keeps faith forever. Some Bible translations will flesh this out as he remains faithful. He remains faithful forever. And that's certainly one of the implications of this phrase. We can count on God. We can trust God because he's faithful. What he says he's going to do, he does and he will do. No questions asked, no obstacles, nothing in the universe can hold him back. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. You can't stop him. The devil can't stop him. Nobody can stop him. He's going to keep his word. He remains faithful forever. But the phrase is interesting. It's got these layers, and I like peeling those layers. He keeps faith. The word for keep, it's the word we looked at in Psalm 121 that was repeated through that. He protects or guards. And the word for faith in Hebrew is, it's got two sides to it. And you can think about this in English. Why do we trust someone? Because they tell us the truth. You can even see it in English. Trust and truth have that T-R-U on the front of it. The Hebrew's got the same kind of thing going on. He keeps faith is the reality that he keeps the truth. I think that's what the King James says. He keeps the truth. What does that mean? Well, he holds on to the truth. It's the idea that all truth is God's truth. Wherever there is truth to be found, God is the source of it. He defines what is true. What is true is true because God says so. There's no other basis for truth beyond that. Our world and our culture is so broken and so in such a mess is because they've, they've rejected that idea outright. Where does truth come from? Well, it comes from wherever you want it to come from. It comes from your community. It comes from whatever you decide is true. No, absolutely not. It comes from the reality that God defines truth. 
He is the one who originates truth. It corresponds to reality. Whatever corresponds to the reality that God has made and that God defines. So ultimately, He is responsible for maintaining, holding, guarding, protecting, ensuring that reality keeps going, that the truth remains the truth for all times and forever. He does that. So He can be counted on. He can be trusted, and He's worthy of our worship because of that. Secondly, in verse 7, He executes justice for the oppressed. He executes justice for the oppressed. Literally, this is the same phrase as we saw in verse, uh, at the beginning of verse 6. The maker of heaven and earth is the maker of justice for the oppressed. Again, it goes back to this idea that He defines what is right. He defines what is right. He defines what is just and good in this world. And ultimately, He takes responsibility for establishing and executing justice. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is going to come a day when He is going to set all things right. And that means in particular justice for the oppressed. That those who have experienced victimization, those who are victims of horrific sin, can count on God to make that right. One of the reasons that we groan in this world is because He doesn't do it immediately. We groan because we experience abuse at the hands of other people. We experience abuse at the hands of, the other, of other people, and many, many times, justice is not served. They, don't, they go without punishment, maybe for their whole lifetime. And that leaves a victim in a very painful place. The truth that God is calling us to cling to is that He will punish the oppressors. Those who perpetrate violence against other people, those who victimize other people, will, will have their day in court. If they don't in this life, and even if they do, they won't experience the full measure of what they deserve. But there is going to be a day when all accounts will be settled. The wonder of it all is that all of us are guilty of some measure of abuse and violence and victimization. And all of us deserve that day in court. And the wonder of it all is that God has settled that account for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's God who did that. It's God who did that. He is the one who executes justice. And every sin, every sin will receive does receive the punishment that it deserves. No more and no less. Either, either in the cross of Jesus or in the person themselves. This is a great hope for us. This is the God we put our hope in. This is a God who victims of terrible abuse can put their hope in. The other side of that is that for when we've been sinned against, God has the power to redeem that pain so that in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, none of us will look back and experience grief or pain or question God's justice. We will all be perfectly satisfied by the justice that God has meted out. Until that day, we wonder. Until that day, we struggle. And it's not wrong to struggle with that. But we have to come at the end of the day to this place where we leave vengeance in the hand of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so we leave it to Him. And that is hard for those of us who have been hurt by other people in terrible ways. But the psalmist worships this God who is the maker of justice for the oppressed. He's the one who accomplishes true justice in a way that we never could. We don't have the ability to know or to mete out that kind of justice, but He does and He will. 
I would remind you that Jesus is the one specifically who has that responsibility. John chapter 5 in particular, verses 28 and 29 or thereabouts, Jesus claims that authority from God. He says that His Father has given Him the authority to judge. He is the one who will execute perfect justice. And we can trust Him to do that because He knows the extent of true justice. He hung on a cross and paid that penalty for us. And so He knows it in a way that none of us can. Next in verse 7, he says, This is God is the one who gives bread or food to the hungry. The psalmist has to be thinking back a little bit here to the way that God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. But more generally, he recognizes that at all times and in all places for all people and for even the animals, God is the one who is responsible for feeding. God is the one who is responsible for giving food to people. And so he points to God and said, He's the one who gives food to hungry people. And in other places we could go to in the Psalms, God is the one who gives food to hungry animals too. And you think of Jesus' teaching and how he teaches us not to be anxious about our food because God feeds the birds. He gives us that object lesson and that truth to remind us that God is the one who takes care of his children and his creation. And so we can trust Him to do that. And the call is to trust Him when we experience hunger because that's the reality and that's where the tension comes. Some people starve to death. Some Christians starve to death. How does God get the glory for feeding the hungry? Well, surely it must go beyond literal food. Surely it must go beyond the reality of literal food. As Jesus himself said, quoting Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the way that God feeds the hungry might not look like we would wish in this world. But the call and the reality is God is in charge of food in this world, (laughs) and he is the one in charge of distributing it. And he gets the credit when somebody eats to satisfaction. God did that. And we all kind of recognize that at least when we sit down at a meal and we give God thanks. We say the blessing. We give thanks to God for giving us the food. Even though I worked really hard and got an income and I went to the grocery store and I bought these things and my wife cooked it, I didn't. But God ultimately gets the thanks for that because he provided all of that. Right? He provided the job. He provided the income. He provided the material resources. He gets all of the credit for those things. And so he feeds the hungry. Can't help but thinking about Jesus there as well in his ministry, how he fed the 5,000 and he fed the 4,000 with literal bread. And then in John 6, he laid out the lesson from that miracle that He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is the bread that gets baked, if you will, for the life of the world. And so Jesus Himself is the one who's responsible for giving, laying down His own life, giving Himself as the bread that sustains eternal life for His people. Going on in verse 7 and on through verse 9, we see suddenly the psalmist grabs hold of the name of God and starts just repeating it, Yahweh. You see it uh, five times there in those, uh, the second half of verse 7 all the way through verse 9. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. This again goes back to the Exodus, right? He set the Israelites free from their slavery, but it points forward ultimately to how God sets all of us all of those who trust Him, who trust Jesus, free from their slavery to sin in the bigger picture. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes that as well. You remember Jesus announced His ministry essentially in a synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and He goes to Isaiah 61 and quotes verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, and He has anointed me to preach the good news. And part of that Preaching the good news is to set the captives free. Not simply from slavery to human beings. Not simply from slavery to a wicked country or a wicked leader. But to set free from the great enemies, Satan, sin, and death, that hold everybody captive. Jesus has come to break that captivity and to set people free from that slavery 
It's the Lord Jesus who does that. Verse 8, the psalmist goes on, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. And of course, Jesus did that repeatedly during His ministry. And He accomplishes a greater opening of the eyes of the blind throughout history. Because for you and I as sinful people to see the glory of God, for you and I to see the truth of Scripture, for you and I to see our need for God's grace to even set us free from that slavery, we need Jesus to open the eyes of our hearts. And the wonder of it all is that He does. And He promises to do that very thing. That's how salvation happens. You and I were born in the dark. Somebody had to flip on the light switch. And you didn't do it. You didn't do it for yourself, and nobody else did it other than Jesus. Using maybe preached words, using maybe a tract on paper, using maybe the words printed on these pages, but Jesus is the one who flips the light switch on in the heart. He's the only one who can do that, and He does. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down, those who are broken and bent over by their slavery to sin. It's another slave image there. And I couldn't help but think about Jesus rescuing that Jewish woman in Luke's Gospel from being bent over quite literally and physically. And Jesus described it as being oppressed by Satan, bent over and broken by the oppression of Satan himself. And Jesus set her free from that. Jesus is the one who lifts up those who are bowed down and broken. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh loves righteous people. What do you think about that? Does He love unrighteous people? Sure. But, are you okay with the idea and the truth that the Lord loves the righteous in a way that He does not love the unrighteous. Are you okay with that? I hope you are. Think about it like this. I love my wife in a way that I don't love any of you. <laughs> and I hope you would say, that's good. <laughs> We're real glad about that. I love my children, my daughter, in a way that I don't love any of your kids. I do love your kids. I love my daughter very differently. And I hope you can see that that is the truth of God as well. He, Jesus loves His bride in a way that He does not love those who reject Him. God loves His adopted children in a way that He does not love those He has not adopted into His family. In a human setting, we would say that's good and right, but when we start talking about it with God, we, we struggle a little bit. John 3.16 is very true. God loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that all who believe in Him may have life everlasting. He does love the world of unbelievers. But he does not love the world of unbelievers in the same way that he loves his people. I'll let you noodle on that one for a little while. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.4. He speaks of God's great love for us. He's got a great love for us. And that is a unique phrase in the Bible. It only appears right there in Ephesians 2.4. He has a great love for you. And I, I hope you feel that. I hope that it's not offensive to you to say, well, God loves me no differently than He loves the one who hates Him. I hope you see that it's a wonder and a beautiful thing that God extends a great and special and covenant love for you that He doesn't extend to the world. It's a beautiful thing. When, a merit, when marital love is on display. And that's what we see in God's love for the righteous that's displayed here. Carrying on into verse 9, Yahweh watches over, keeps, guards, protects the sojourners, those who are wanderers on the earth. And that's, of course, <laughs> our definition. That's our identity. We are sojourners in this world. Our home is elsewhere and coming soon. 
And so we are sojourners as, well, as long as we live in this world, and it's God who takes particular responsibility to keep us, to protect us, to guard us, to watch over us, to ensure that we make it to the finish line. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. He takes special care of those who have lost their most important relationships. You see that repeatedly in the Old Testament. Yahweh comes alongside those who have lost. The widow is the one who has lost the most important relationship in her life. The spouse. God comes alongside the widow in a special way. Same thing for the fatherless, the orphan, people who have lost their parents, people who are missing one parent even in the biblical language, is an orphan. And God cares very much for those people. And again, I was reminded of Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, He saw a funeral procession marching by of a young boy who had died. He was the son of a widow. And Jesus was moved with compassion and He raised that boy from the dead to care for the widow. She had no one else. And so Jesus comes by and raises her son from the dead and restores that brokenness. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for those who have lost. The psalmist turns to the other side of the coin at the end of verse 9. The way or the path of the wicked he brings to ruin. There's, actually, there's a play on words here that we could bring out into English if we Translated the, first, the previous line, he sustains the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he suppresses. And ultimately, this takes us back to Psalm 1. The way of the wicked will perish. And it's active here. It's not just they perish of their own accord. They reap the consequences of what they sow. No, God brings their path to ruin. He brings active judgment against wicked people. The end of the line for wicked people is a cliff that they then go down to their destruction. They will have their day in court. All who continue in rebellion against God will have their day in court. And the sentence will be hell forever. Punishment, bodily, emotionally, spiritually, punishment forever. God does that to execute and establish justice. The path of wicked people leads to destruction. Verse 10 looks ahead to the future, what the Lord does, what the Lord will do in the future. Yahweh will reign forever. And He has begun that reign already. Yahweh will reign forever And notice how the psalmist then turns outward. He's been praising God for all of this, and now he turns outward to the congregation again. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And he ends with hallelujah, praise Yah again. And so from all that we've seen in these verses, all that we've seen about God here, the psalmist says, worship Praise, speak well of Him for all of these wonderful things that He's done and that He does and that He will do in the future. He is our great King. He is worthy of all our worship. And ultimately, as we've already been doing, we turn to Jesus. Jesus is worthy of all our praise and ultimately all of our trust. We can trust Jesus because all of these things are true of Him because He lives out all of these realities The famous English preacher from the late 1700s to the early 1800s, Charles Simeon, said regarding this psalm, We do not indeed find the psalm that is before us expressly cited in the New Testament, but the whole of it so accords with what is elsewhere spoken respecting him, and the very words of the text are so descriptive of what Christ himself declared to be the great end of his mission, that we can feel no hesitation in interpreting it as relating to Christ. We've already been doing that. He does all the things that Yahweh is praised for in this psalm. But to close this morning, I want to briefly reflect on one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Earlier, if you were with us outside, we sang the Revelation song, which combines elements from Revelation chapters 4 and 5 together. In Revelation chapter 4, 
John sees a vision of the heavenly throne room where worship is focused on God for creating the universe. In Revelation chapter 5, the vision continues to depict worship, shifting focus, though, on the Lamb for His work of redemption. So chapter 4 focuses our attention on worshiping God for creation. Chapter 5 then focuses our attention on worshiping the Lamb for redemption. So follow along with me as I read this magnificent chapter, and then I'll pick out some of the highlights and we'll be done. I will restrain myself, I promise. (laughs) Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What are we seeing here? What is this wondrous vision all about? It is picturing the authority transfer from the Father to the Son. What we what I mentioned in passing from John chapter 5, where Jesus says, All the, the authority to judge is handed over to me. We're getting a picture of that right here in Revelation chapter 5. And the Son, the Lamb, is being worshipped for redemption. We see this image of God sitting on His throne, holding out this scroll with seven seals, holding it tightly so that it can't be opened, it can't be read, it can't be put into place, put into reality. Once it's opened and once it's read, things are going to be unleashed in the world. And so John sees this as a problem that no one anywhere can do it. And so he begins to weep. He knows that this scroll must be unfurled to have God's plan accomplished in history. It has to be done. And he sees that it's not going to happen. And so he weeps. But one of the elders tells him to stop weeping. Stop crying, you big baby. No, he was right to weep. But the truth of the matter is, there is one who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. But notice, that's what he was told The the elder said to him, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And so John hears about this lion. So he begins to look and see, where's the lion? He's looking for the lion. And what he sees is not a lion, but a lamb. He hears about the lion. He sees the lamb. And of course, the lamb is the lion. There's no doubt about that. The lamb, the lamb had been slain, and John can see in this vision the marks of his sacrifice on his body. And he approaches the throne. He has the right, the audacity even, to approach the very throne of God. And not only that, but to take something from God. To take the scroll out of the hand of the one sitting on the, on the throne. And not only does he take it, he starts breaking the seals open. You don't see that until chapter 6. But that's what unfolds next. This lamb who is worthy takes the scroll and he begins to unfurl it and begins to open up what's inside and to bring it to pass. But before you get to see any of that, there's a great, loud worship that comes forth. And John wants to tell all about it before he gets to the other part, chapter 6 all the way through, at least chapter 13. And they sang a new song, and he tells us about this new song, and it's all about the Lamb and His great worth. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is the Lamb worthy? What's made Him worthy? You were slain. You were executed. You were killed. And by your blood, through your death on the cross, you ransomed people. You made a purchase. You paid a price that set people free from their slavery. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the accomplishment of the Lamb is what makes Him worthy. Not just who He is in Himself, but what He's done in His death. That's what makes Him worthy to bring about the judgment that we see unfolding in chapter 6 and following. He comes up into heaven here. He approaches the throne of God. He takes the scroll. He takes the authority and then he executes it. And we see it unfolded in visionary form in the following chapters. But the worship is not over yet. There's more to sing and there's more to shout and there's more to say. And he sees and hears the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, an uncountable multitude. And they are singing about the Lamb's worth as well. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive, and note this, you could count them here, there's seven. It's a sevenfold blessing, and that's not by accident. That is by divine intent. He is worth all blessing. Seven being a symbolic number of the complete worth of this Lamb. Power and wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. All of it goes to the Lamb. All of it goes to the Lamb. In Isaiah, God says, I will share my glory with nobody. The Lamb gets it all. And He's not sharing with somebody who's not Himself. He's sharing with the Lamb who is fully God and fully deserving of all worship. And finally, all creation joins in the great song here. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like? I don't have a category for that. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb both together be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and all God's people said amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the great worth of the Lamb. The ways that you display it in your word are multitudinous and deserve our frequent attention and our frequent study and all of our conversation. <laughs> what else in this world is worth talking about? Oh, Father, thank you for giving us your very self in the life of your Son. Thank you for making it possible for us to praise you. You are worth it all. Father, would you help us live a life of praise, not just praising you with our lips, but praising you with our lives. But let's not forget about praising you with our lips. Let us speak well of you. 
to each other in our homes, in the community, out in the world. We want to hold up your glory as a banner that you are worth all of our devotion, all of our life, everything that we do. We want to do it to honor you. You are the only one who deserves that kind of honor. Thank you that you have sent your son to show us the way, and not only to show us the way, but to secure the way for us in his death on the cross. Thank you that you have purchased us. And you didn't, you didn't leave us here. You didn't abandon us. You didn't pay the price and then just let us linger. You walk with us now to ensure that we're going to make it to the finish line. You're going to bring home what you purchased. So thank you that you have secured our redemption fully and finally in an event that happened 2,000 years ago that cannot be changed or reduced or minimized in any way. Help us to magnify the glory of that event, of the Lamb's sacrifice, and help us to revel, to revel in the freedom that you have granted to us, freedom from slavery to sin. Help us to pursue repentance in all of our ways, every day of our lives, and dedicate ourselves to giving you praise. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.